How's it going, everyone? Steve here with the Vocaholics, Season 2, Episode 3. Um, I thought with the recent um, controversies surrounding Claudine Gay at Harvard and other discussions about DEI, or as it should be called, D-I-E, um, there was an opportunity here to bring the podcast chat back to some talk about race. And it really intersects with everything else, too, and the conversations and stuff that have um, splintered off of this discussion about Claudine Gay has, of course, looped in everyone and everybody that has some kind of grievance to explain why they're the real victims when they're nothing of the sort. Um, the reason why I wanted to speak about it was not so much to criticize or speak about the actual events that occurred, though I will touch on them, but to kind of bring something back. Because I think that what I'm sensing, what I'm feeling throughout the community, society, whatever you want to, however you want to name it or label it. Um, I think people have hit this point of saturation where they're starting to speak out. Um, and it's hitting a little bit differently than the general opposition to these crazy leftist things uh, normally would, which is not hitting at all. Uh, they would be ignored or dismissed or explained away as bigotry or, or something else. Um, so let's take it back. Let's take it back to a year, let's say 1990. I'm from New York City. I'm from the suburbs of New York City, beautiful town called Staten Island. That's not so beautiful. These days, it's a little bit overcrowded, a little bit crazy, but I want to talk about it a little bit. And I've done so in the past. So if you've heard this before, you've heard my spiel, so be it. But it stands reason to reiterate it for the, the point of this episode. When I was growing up, um, you know, I'm Set Island is just a, a small, pretty small island. Um, and at the time, the population wasn't so crazy as it is now. It's probably doubled since I was a kid. Now it's quite overcrowded. Even so, in that little island that's no more than 10 or 11 miles long, uh, six or seven miles wide, um, it was packed with a lot of diversity. And by diversity, I mean the good kind, the kind that's natural, the kind that is not contrived, that is not spoken about as if it in and of itself is a virtue or something to celebrate, but rather something to experience and enjoy. Um, even so, in spite of that diversity, in spite of the small size, you were kind of bound, or at least you identified yourself. If someone asked you, where were you from? You would identify with your neighborhood. A neighborhood in Staten Island can vary, but generally speaking, you're talking about maybe um, let's call it, uh, 10 blocks by 10 blocks, something like that, which might equate to like four square miles, give or take, right? It, it varies. There's bigger neighborhoods than others. Um, and on top of that, you know, there's maybe 20 neighborhoods in Staten Island, maybe 30. Um, on top of that, you also identified yourself as being North shore or South shore. So you, in spite of the divisions, in that little island that kind of made it like this big massive puzzle you really just identified yourself as being from north of the staten island expressway or south of it north of it was a lot smaller in landmass, though probably much larger in population and south of it was basically how staten islands would explain it is mostly the italians and um you know that's just kind of generalizing of course but it's a much bigger area but a probably roughly equal in population um, 
The Italians mostly in the south, although the Italians in Staten Island are everywhere. In the north, it was always a mix. Um, it, it was, you know, white people, uh, and that would usually be Irish, Polish, uh, Russians, Germans, Jews. Um, and then there were, of course, you know, people from minority populations, black, Puerto Rican was a large population. And then you had others like Arabs, Indians, uh, and the like. Um, and, you know, we didn't really keep score. Like it didn't, it didn't really matter to us. Um, when you met someone new in Staten Island, when I was young, and you could kind of sense that they were like their background, their history, their family came from elsewhere, which is very common. If you weren't first generation in Staten Island, you were second generation. So in other words, you're like at least a grandparent who came from some another country generally. Um, I mean, that was very common. You would say something to the effect of like, where are you from? And it's hard to explain, but you would know through context, whether that meant like what neighborhood are you from or where is your family from, right? Now, in every experience I've had outside of Staten Island, that question is frowned upon. It's looked at almost like you're being uh, bigoted or obtuse or ignorant to someone's ethnicity as if you're just supposed to guess and know. Um, but the way we were is we were just curious. We were, we were bred and we were taught to be curious about the people around us. Now, my, uh, one of my doctors when I was a kid was Indian. I, I wound up I grew up and I, I went to high school with her, her little boys, her, her sons who aren't little anymore. We went to high school, obviously. Um, I had friends who were Puerto Rican. I had friends who were black. I had friends who were Mexican. I had friends who were Arab. And even though in our little pocketed neighborhood where, you know, generally our, your school is within your neighborhood and everyone who goes to that school is from the same neighborhood because we have a lot of public schools scattered around Staten Island. By the time you made the jump to junior high school, you were exposed to other people from other neighborhoods. And that opened up more conversations because you were seeing a lot more people who didn't look like you. But never, never during that time were those conversations coming from a place, or those questions, I should say, coming from a place of um, dislike or detest for the people you were meeting of other races. Now, the bottom line is, is ultimately it didn't matter. Like my Indian friends sounded like me. They sounded like Staten Islanders. My Chinese friends sounded like me. My my Korean friends sounded like me. My, my Arab friends sounded like me. You know, it, there wasn't, there was never anything so distinguishable from these folks, save for me, and I can't even think of an example off the top of my head, but save for an example where the, the child that I was meeting, the, the, the person I was becoming friends with in school, grammar school that is, actually was from another country. Um, they were just Staten Islanders to us, right? So we weren't asking these questions as a way to divide. We were thinking about what they were, who they, like what their grandparents made them to eat. And like, you know, that's the kind of culture we had. So while the neighborhoods themselves might have been somewhat partitioned off by race, I mean, it wasn't that people were dividing themselves by race. It was they were dividing themselves by the country they were from most often, or at least the region, right? So that, mean, that means you got a lot of Arabs, I mean, uh, you got a lot of Europeans together in certain neighborhoods. You got a lot of um, like Spanish, uh, Hispanic that kind of stuff. Like in another neighborhood, um, there are black kids in another neighborhood, but generally speaking, you could not go through your life up through high school um, without eventually being enmeshed in those cultures, those neighborhoods, et cetera, and those kids. And, you know, I think back to when we were in grammar school and 
you know, at the time I, I had no clue about this. And obviously as a grammar school kid, like grammar school age, so that's kindergarten through fifth grade. Um, for those of you who don't really understand the, the distinctions made in New York City public school system, but first uh, kindergarten through fifth grade is grammar school, elementary school, whatever you want to call it, junior high school, sixth through eighth grade, and then ninth through 12th, obviously is high school. Um, um, you know, um, so you make those connections at the time and what, what we, what I realize now in hindsight is that we were taught like most kids are taught to respect everybody, but we were taught in a way that I see now created a, a sense that someone's race or how they looked on the outside was superficial. It was boring. It was irrelevant. And while DEI proponents or CECRT theorists and stuff might consider that a negative thing, looking back now, now 30 years older or so, like I'm, I'm thinking to myself and questioning how on earth someone could find that not a positive. You see, when you focus on something that's intangible or immutable, like a characteristic that you can't choose, it creates this facade about who we are as people. It takes away from the notion that we have intricacies about us, that we have things that are actually relevant to who we are as people. When I look at some of the areas that are now facing some criticism about their DEI procedures and how that's denigrated and like undermine their own missions, academia is not you know, the only one that's, that's seeing some criticism for this. You're, you're hearing it about airlines and... Um, and other things, right? Um, when the lesson is that race is number one, coming from where I come from, where regardless of your color, we were all more or less raised the same, or at least we experienced childhood similarly. Therefore, we had this a lot of the same interests, a lot of the same music, you know, a lot of the same paths. Um, especially if, if you stuck around in public school, you more or less got the same treatment everywhere you went. Um, if you just say, or if you claim that race is like the determining factor that makes you diverse, people would say, you know, that's kind of bullshit. If you take 10, 10 Staten Islanders who were born and raised in Staten Island and applies, apply this to any city, you take 10 of those people and figure out a way to get someone from a different ethnicity in each of those 10 slots, I would argue you don't have a very desert, diverse population right? Because you've experienced your youth similarly, you've experienced your education similarly, similarly, you've likely pursued not the same career paths, obviously, like, but you know, there are trends that may vary from place to place. But in Staten Island, there is a big push that if you don't go into something like business or something completely wild and different, like the military and intelligence, like I've pursued, you're pursuing something with stability. And that usually translates into union work. In New York City, the unions are almost everything. Um, without education, you can make it very far. You could make a very, very, very decent living. You could gather a ton of overtime and perks and benefits and retire you know, with a very nice, nice income for the rest of your life. So it's a very, um, you know, it's very uh, coveted 
to get into a union in New York City. So if you take 10 city kids, whether they be male or female, you put them in unions, you have them live their life, and at 40, you ask them about their experiences, I can guarantee you, you're going to see a lot of similar stories, right? And I don't need to get more into the nitty-gritty about Staten Island on that point. The point is that you take something that is technically boring. And by boring, I don't mean that people who are white don't have some interesting stories about their backgrounds, that people who are black don't have interesting stories about their backgrounds, their ancestors. Like, I'm sure there's cultural differences, and we we experienced all those in Staten Island um, in our compact little neighborhoods, right? Even if the person, people to the left or right of you on your street were to look like you, it didn't take many houses for you to find someone who didn't. and that's where people settled naturally. They didn't pick and choose. And, you know, they didn't, that's where they came when they came over from Europe and elsewhere. And the diversity of that was organic. What that enabled was a situation in which people were naturally curious, they were open minded in a good way, and they were able to channel that and make connections based on that, knowing that they're the same really they come from staten island this cool place with great pizza on that note you know i didn't drive until i was 16 17 years old but before that if i felt hungry and i wanted to go walk around a little bit i could walk three blocks in any direction and i could hit a pizzeria ran by italians i could hit a pizzeria owned by albanians i could hit indian I could hit Chinese, I could hit Jewish delis, I could hit Italian delis, I could hit Polish delis. You know, you get that elsewhere. But in New York, it was authentic, right? And that's really a natural beauty that I have yet to find elsewhere in the country since I've left New York City, more or less, uh, about coming up on 20 years ago. Um, and even when I go back, it's lost a little bit of that. And why? It's because we have attached a useless set of ideals, traits, to the notion of inclusivity and and diversity. And we celebrate it. And we pretend. That's the key. We pretend that it has innate value when it's actually subtracting from that value. And I find that incredibly sad. So on the point of Claudine Gay, yes, it's true. Her congressional testimony was an absolute disaster. And I'll touch a little bit on the Hamas thing in a second. But the testimony was a disaster. Excuse me, took some water. Um, you know, it, there was, I don't care if the motivation behind the questioning was political. Politicians are political. I mean, you're going to get politics from politicians. But they were softball at questions thrown at you, at her and the other presidents of the universities. And she flubbed it. Now, in that moment, she could have just said, hey, I fucked it up, basically. I was trying to, I mean, I don't look up to this, but she could have said something to the effect of, I was trying to get cute with my words and not tick anybody off. And there you go. Um, The reality of the situation is, she represents a university that, you know, it's more than Harvard. She represented in that moment a system that has morphed the concept of education and what an, an, and what an administrator within that system 
that an administrator within that system is supposed to be doing. Yes, she as the president is the face of the school. But after this happened, and after I heard some of her diatribes about, you know, her apologies and trying to kind of sweep away her terrible answers at the at the congressional testimony. And so, and actually some of the quotes by the board too, because I think it was the board at first who stated that they came out or they came out and stated that they unequivocally continue to support her and that they feel that she is the right person to lead the university towards challenging or down the path towards like addressing, I don't have the exact words, I'm winging this, um, addressing the problems of our time or like, you know, just like society's great questions or debates or problems or whatever, alluding to the fact that her role as a president of a college meant that she was fixing something about society on a broader level. That's nonsense, right? That's not what a university should do at all, let alone one person from the university. A university is supposed to give you space to challenge everything that you see and to critically think about it and put it down on paper and attribute properly, right? She didn't do that in her past and just challenge the piss out of stuff, right? Now, you might say, oh, you know, she does that and her support for DEI initiatives, like that's a lot about what her academic scholarship is focused on. I've read some of it. It's not great. Um, but the overwhelming trends and like the understanding, and everyone knows this, including leftists, is that conservative thought is, has been and continues to be suppressed in higher academics. And it's been pushed aside for something that we are slowly taking off the table in the realm of stuff that we are allowed to criticize. Tell me what the criticism for someone like you or me would be if we criticized Claudine Gay's work, that work being very focused on race issues and white privilege and stuff like that, what would the the reaction be to our criticism of such things? That we have hate or that we're being racist ourselves or that we need to be educated, like with such a terrible phrase, it means so much more than it actually says in those couple of words. Academics as a whole has created an environment where that idea is promoted. It's festered and it, it was born and it's, it, it's been bred in that university system. So if there's one thing that I take away as a huge positive from this, I mean, I take there's some other positives, so I like the small wins too, and I like to knock down DEI crap wherever I can. But the one big thing that I like here is that it's really opened the door to this kind of cesspool that we've allowed to ferment over the decades when I was in college, I saw hints of it, though in general, when I did show up, which was not often, I hated undergrad. I, you know, I got along pretty well with teachers who very obviously disagreed, right? Like we knew it, like we could just see their publications, their background, we heard the arguments, but they gave us space to talk shit out. Um, no one came at you for the types of words you used or the phrases you said. No one was screaming trigger warning, trigger warning. They let you go, right? And I didn't care at the time. I was just a college kid partying. I was an athlete. I, I knew by the end of my senior year, I was probably going to enlist because I didn't really want to go to school anymore. And I didn't want to go to grad school, law school, or do something in politics properly. My major was political science. Um, you know, I, I didn't really care at the time. I didn't really give much thought to this, but in hindsight, I appreciated that time they allowed for us to to talk, even though I was never there. 
Gay's answers, the people who have defended her, the people who have criticized those criticizing Gay, have proven to me that something has gone amiss in the last 20 years or so of higher education. There's a whole lot of folks on Twitter right now with like, not necessarily doctorates, but at least masters. They put it in their username, so they're clearly proud of it. They clearly want to uh, espouse or like they want to show off the fact that they are somehow of a higher education level or they have more esteem or what it is is they want to want you to approach them like feeling like you're below them and that they have the credibility and you don't they have taken this in a crazy direction of stupidity there's really only one of two things that could have happened in the in the gay situation which makes this all the more funny either the board because apparently they vetted 600 people or they considered 600 people and maybe they cut that down and then vetted. Either they looked at Claudine Gay as a potential finalist, saw what she had done in the academic space. It's the plagiarism stuff, even though I don't really, you know, I don't care so much about mistakes and in, 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 in citations. I'm not, I'm not publishing journals myself. Um, the bigger issue is that the, what she wrote sucked. But, you know, either they found that and they ignored it, right? Either they vetted her, saw some issues, and tried to just think that no one's ever going to find it. And for a while, they didn't, right? Or they didn't vet her at all. Given that when she was announced as the next president of Harvard last year, that the first thing you heard about was how, ooh la la, first black, first woman, right, as president. They brought that to us, right? We didn't bring it to them. They opened the door. If you're going to celebrate up on, you know, step one about someone's gender and, and sex and race, right, as like the initiating things that make this like a, a, a worthwhile choice as the next Harvard president, there has to be an opposite end that is allowed to criticize that or question if that was the right path if something goes wrong. In this case, something did go wrong. And we're supposed to pretend that it's really just about testimony or that we are just worried about someone's single sentence answer to like stupid answer to a question or that we actually care about her plagiarism. We don't actually care about the plagiarism. The point is that Harvard is supposed to care about the plagiarism. That's what it's supposed to be, right? That it's like the number one research institution in the country it has a $50 billion endowment. Like this is like the cream of the crop or it's supposed to be. I don't believe it is, but, you know, I'm talking here about what the general national opinion of it would be. And you can't hide from the fact that Harvard, Harvard has a history and a hell of a good reputation. So either of those two things happened. They either saw and ignored or just never vetted at all. And out of 600 people, why would someone say, let's just pick Claudine Gay and not vet her at all? If you read her stuff, as I've said twice now, you wouldn't say it was for her writing, right? It's boring. It lacks any type of interesting nature to it whatsoever. And as we know, it didn't even meet the standards published by Harvard at the time. It wasn't once, it wasn't twice, it was dozens. And no one found it until she screwed up one time. So why was no one looking? Because we are indoctrinated to understand and believe that we can't touch people like Claudine Gay. 
On the flip side, I think it's terrible that someone like Claudine Gay, right, has to go into a position as like like Harvard, president of Harvard, first this, first that, doesn't matter. But to assume a position like that where you know that it's very likely, based on the words that your own university's board says all the time and reiterates and shoves down your throat, how could you go into that feeling confident and good that you were given that position, that you were given that credibility for your skills and what you bring to the table? How could you not question that? I would argue that if you can't question that at all, then there's something about you that's lacking from the start. To not have that awareness, how could you feel good about achieving something and thinking, you know, there's a good chance that I was pushed into this based on my race? Now, how many of you have heard in a situation where that argument came up, where they would say, well, the flip side is, is everyone was always white. Yeah, I get it. That's because there was a lot of folks that were right white in the country pursuing these career paths way earlier than a lot of Americans who were previously treated like shit. There is no getting around that. And I don't think any of us on this flip side of things, on the opposite side of the spectrum from progressives, has argued that we have treated everybody equally and perfectly all the time. I would ask those progressives why they vote for the people who created all that shit, right? And why do they still practice it? Because as much as they will claim that they're doing positives to make up for the country's ills of the past, and as much as they're, they think that they're doing in the realm of charity, which they're doing less than Republicans, or, you know, just... They're, they believe they're doing more, but what we really see is that they maintain this framework of looking down on people while they do it. And, you know, is it true that maybe I've experienced that less in the past because I'm a white guy? Sure, I get that. That's not the point. And that isn't really white privilege. That's just kind of like a shitty way that things go as we evolve away from a system that's very ingratiated or that's it's very much a constant of our culture and our and our society right so for example take women's voting um St. Paul just yesterday St. Paul Minnesota celebrated everybody in the city council being a female for the first time and you know whatever it doesn't matter um that's not diverse right that's not diverse at all um, but you know, the reason why it was a longer road for women to get into positions of power and become senators and eventually vie for positions like president of the United States is because women simply didn't pursue politics back in the day. It wasn't a cultural norm. It wasn't like there were a bunch of women bat like knocking down walls and protesting saying, why aren't you letting us do this? It just wasn't done. A lot of what has happened over time that is perceived today as oppression or mistreatment is just the result of people living, just getting on with their ways, right? It wasn't that there was this cabal of men that got together and said, we can't get the women to do this. It's because at the time there was a much more, there was much more of a focus and a reliance on the stability of the family within that framework of the man goes to work, whether that be in something white collar or blue collar or get your, getting your hands dirty or what. And the mother who was built for this tends to the family at home. 
where we've gone a, like a, where we've gone askew, where we've gone astray in how we approach things now is that we have gone away from the perspective that allowed us to understand that the mother at that time was more important than the man. It's true, you needed money to buy things and sustain your family, but the men could have done that in a number of ways, right? None of the men could have been the mothers, zero of them. That's not how things work. That is not how we're built. So we're at the stage now where we talk all about these dollars and cents and how women make X percentage of men on the dollar per job. The reality is, is all of those discussions are bullshit. They're rooted in the notion that our value is found in the dollars we make and not in the people we make and take care for, right? Or take care of. I find that incredibly sad. The gay situation she was pushed into her position at Harvard to bring with her what she carried before it, which is a bunch of academic kind of scholarship. She spent some time as a dean, but everything that she did in the run-up, at least in the couple years prior, was to push this shit about DEI and critical race stuff into colleges and to turn it into inclusion and all the other code words people use for these nonsense programs that are really just designed to make some people feel like shit and guilty about things and to make other people feel like they are fucking untouchable. It is an incredibly, what would be the best word? It's deceptive. It's deceptive and it is built on the lie that we don't have inherent differences that make us unique while at the same time binding us together into something cohesive as one. Um, so to see this kind of crumble has been a real positive, right? But at the same time, it's allowing people to come out of the woodwork, people who might've been hiding a bit in the realm of race. Cause I'll say, you know, over the last year or two, the trans stuff has really dominated like the, the, the public discussions about things. Um, you know, after George Floyd died, like that was the big thing for a year. And now since then, it's been about trans issues as if they're important on them on their own, or if like being trans is some kind of virtue, it's not. Um, but this is the point when you do when and I'll wrap up shortly after this, I don't intend to talk here for an hour. But when you break people up into oppressor and oppressed, there is no way of ever equalizing that. Let's assume and be very gracious here, but let's assume that people are correct about the white is oppressor, the black are the oppressed. And this is why we need DEI. We need to talk, talk, talk. You're never going to come to a place where neither are the oppressor. If you start from that framework, all you're going to do is tilt it and flip it the other way. How often do you hear that X or Y company or entity or government agency is supposed to reflect how America looks? right? And we usually do this by percentages. Like there's only 30% of women in government agencies right now, or like there's only 10% minorities in government agencies right now. Do you think the same crowd calling that wrong? If let's say government agencies were 95% black would call that wrong. If the answer is, or if they would say, no, that's not wrong. What they are being is hypocritical. If they believe that whatever the makeup is today is wrong because it somehow doesn't reflect America, anything outside of a strict 
attention to those demographic statistics of by race. Anything outside of that is wrong. Whether it's by one person or a thousand people, it doesn't matter. It's wrong. That's super close-minded. It takes it completely negates the fact that people actually like have a, t- a period of contemplation and they pursue different academic interests and they pursue different career paths. And sometimes that doesn't result in every single hiring body looking exactly like these immutable characteristic percentages that are supposed to explain the beautiful puzzle that is the American like nation. That is, you know, super, super silly. And I think now when we see a city like St. Paul talking about the nine minority women who were elected there, you are seeing more pushback against the notion that that is something to celebrate because why would someone who says, hey, that doesn't look like America, why would they be wrong? They're not. Ultimately, the downfall of DEI is good because it sends us on a path towards recognizing merit more. I understand the argument that people at, you know, they didn't always start at the first step, but like, you know, at the same starting line. I understand the argument. It makes total sense. It's not wrong. The bottom line is, though, you have to allow that for that to correct itself naturally. It's incremental in some situations, in some jobs, or in some universities, in some career paths, some studies, some disciplines of academia, you might see that equalize or, or, or you know, come to like a 50-50 type of thing um, closer. And I'm 50-50, I'm still kind of using race as a framework. So let's say um, engineering, STEM, you might see women break into that more over time. But I suspect whatever number that settles on, It'll be the result of natural choices and decisions and an individual's liberty. There is nothing, you know, inherent about the sciences that says that exactly 50% of the country wants to get involved in them. I could not give two shits about STEM stuff generally. I have interests. I like things like coding and engineering, but I'm not about to go pursue a degree in it, right? So I'm not pursuing a career where I'm doing that specifically. It's just not who I am. And I'm a dude, right? I work with a lot of uh, cyber and hacker types who are female, and that is what they like. And if they're underrepresented, it's only because we're talking about things as if they should be 50-50. And that's just stupid. There's no thought involved in that. It's a superficial marker we put on the ground to divide people, to pretend like we have achieved some type of equilibrium in the world. That's not how the world works. It's never how it's worked. Jordan Peterson likes to talk about things like bricklayers. It's something like 98% male. And the females who work in bricklaying aren't actually laying the bricks. They're administrating. So, I mean, where's the equality in that? You know, it's an extreme example, but it's the truth. People are going to pick things based on what they tend to like. It is very true that in our society, the sexes choose um, a lot of things that don't tend to have a lot of overlap. There are other realms of, of, of... academics and employment where they do, right? And great. That's that's cool too. What Claudine Gay was implementing at Harvard was nothing of that. You know, that, if I could say one thing about what is so detrimental about that is that you put people through these ridiculously expensive experiences. 
and they study their asses off. They make themselves sick studying so much because they want to pursue that, that super close to perfect GPA. And yet, if you teach them and you inculcate them with the culture that our higher education at, now, at present is, is imparting on them, you are leaving them dumber than when they got in. That alone is cause to consider the, reconsider the whole thing. I have some thoughts on that myself as someone who interviews people and hires people who owns his own company. Um, I think people should strongly consider starting to cons like use someone's degree from an Ivy against them. That might sound a little unfair. You know, someone who graduates from Harvard doesn't necessarily have to believe everything that Claudine Gay says. But when the alumni starts leaving these schools and they aren't put into these cush jobs that are just existing, that just exist for people to pay themselves like DEI, when they have a hard time making ends meet on the outside, that is going to cause a problem at these universities because ultimately it's the alumni that sends money and kicks it back because successful alumni want their names on buildings. They want their names in newsletters. They want to continue holding on to that fake prestige. The prestige might have been real in the 80s, the 70s, but I suspect even around then things were changing, right? In a place where free ideas, whether they be right or wrong, distasteful or not, could be free to be exchanged and criticized and argued about. If places like Harvard were doing their jobs, whatever Claudine Gay said at the congressional testimony, while it might be abhorrent, we could have at least settled in a place that said that needs to be challenged that needs to be talked about and criticized and will come out better for it on the other side because we've done so. In her own university, that culture is not present. In every university, that culture is not present, save for maybe a few. It doesn't matter whether the institution is private, whether it's state or city. Every one of these universities is used to push really, really infantile elementary level, uh, and, and by elementary, I mean like just low logic types of ideals on people to the point where the culture that you take from it, the ideals that you, 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 you create and the activism you put into practice afterwards is almost like the reason why you're there and not the education and the degree. That is the opposite of what academia should be like. That is the opposite of what we should be teaching people who are entering the workforce to expect. Ultimately, we want to hire people into our businesses, into our job fields, into our teams, into our government positions, into our, you know, our federal positions and our foreign service. We want well-rounded people who can think and make critically sound decisions without nonsense that's irrelevant defining what they can and cannot think or do or consider. I have yet to hear an argument from a proponent of DEI that wasn't just incredibly 
immature. Yeah, sure, it could be shrouded in fancy words and in a bunch of phrases with the letters like with like the the uh, the participle ness, like whiteness and uh, blackness, and you know you could make things sound interesting when they're not. And people like gay, um, people like the CRT folks, like Ibram X. Kendi and uh, Hannah Nicole Jones, like they are professionals at making nonsense sound like it's valid, that it's been criticized appropriately, that it's been vetted, and that it even just makes sense. The fact that we are where we are now, thanks to gay's follies, puts us in a position to challenge that more. I'm glad that folks like Bill Ackman are starting to go after these motherfuckers. It's true. I don't think that it's all that important to go after some poor community college professor schmuck who's just trying to retire quietly and go vet his, you know, papers. It, it, it It's not a witch hunt, right? I mean, people make mistakes and that's okay. But like the aura that emanates from higher education is vapid and venomous. And cutting off DEI is truly cutting off the head of the snake, right? It's just the head of the snake that's the poisonous part. The rest of it, where the meat is, just slithers behind and is kind of irrelevant. That's what university education is like, and I'm glad we're finally tackling it. I'll leave you guys at that. I'll have more to say soon, I'm sure. But I think we're in a good spot to continue challenging myths like all of the race narratives that generally come out of like uh, police and civilian interactions and deaths that might happen, but, you know, and, and, other, and other things. But now that we're getting a little bit back towards the race narrative where people have taken it upon them to re-inject their bullshit, I mean, you see Kendi's on Twitter all the time now after he got called out a year ago for the fraud scam of a program he's running up at Boston University. Um, bottom line, like, they're going to start talking about this stuff again. And maybe they'll shift a little bit from the trashier parts of DEI, like gender cultism and other alphabet cult stuff. And they'll shift back to race a little bit because there was some quiet there for, for some time. Stay vigilant to it and continue to call it out. And now that you see the reaction to Harvard and, and whatnot, have a little more confidence in yourself to address some of these things if it's weaponized and used against you in a way to make you feel stupid or uneducated or like you don't belong because you do. You know, I miss my I miss my time in Staten Island even though I'm never going back. I, my in-laws still live there, so I do go back a couple times a year, see my friends, I miss my friends. And as much as I love living in Northern Virginia where it's pretty, you know, you know, things are stable, I have a good career, I do miss that family feel of being back home. And that's truly what you got because you knew your neighbors, you were friendly with your neighbors, didn't matter what their color was. The neighbor to my left was white and black in the same family. Across the street was Puerto Rican. My best friend was Italian. The guy across the street from me was Irish. There was a Russian Jew to the right of me across a street that, that ran perpendicular. And I bet if I came home from school one day and my mom wasn't home, my mother would have had no question. And she wouldn't have been worried about it for a second 
if I went to any of their houses because that's what it was like. It was like a tight-knit family feel to things in spite of the natural division of how people just tend to gather. In spite of the division, we were one as family. I do regret that I can't experience that anymore as a Staten Islander. I do regret that now as Staten Island exists with multiple, multiple years of a nearly universal democratic progressive city council and you know, in spite of the redness that, that Staten Island brings with it politically, there's a lot of trash in Staten Island that's come over from the city and from Jersey thanks to the criminality, thanks to the lack of respect, thanks to the basically the promotion of the breakdown of family that is really irrecoverable. Or it, it's it's led to a place where Staten Island is in a downward spiral that can never unravel itself. That makes me sad. And even though I think, you know, that experience can't really be mirrored anywhere else because everywhere else I've gone since has seemed kind of fabricated, kind of cookie cutter. Northern Virginia is nice, but I mean, my neighbor's moving tomorrow out of the house next door and I've seen him like five times in four years. The neighbor to my right is like a grandmother to me and I love her dearly, you know? So in, in one way I, I struck gold and in another way I struck out, but neighborhoods aren't what they were. People don't connect like they did. Part of that has to do with social media and the internet. I get it. But another part of it is the culture that we have created around how we interact with people and how we value each other. And when you're taught that the value is in how you look, there is no room to learn and connect to people on a deeper level. In spite of the fact that those same proponents of the, the cultural Marxism of it all would tell you that it is. And that is the big lie. That's really the only lie. Because it's the only thing that's going to deny us the ability to ever get back to where we were. To where things were natural. People were humble and you really learn to love what it was different about each other, right? And that's just sad. So I'll catch you next time. Thanks for talking. I appreciate you listening to this episode three of season two of the Walkaholics. The Walkaholics, not the Walkaholics. Um, and we'll chat again soon. Have a good one.